To most of us, learning something the hard way implies wasted time and effort. Good teaching, we believe, should make learning easier. On today's episode of the Burleson Box, we speak with Roddy Rodiger, author of Make It Stick, who turns these ideas on their head. Roddy Rodiger is the James S. McDonald Distinguished University Professor at Washington University in St. Louis, where his research for over three decades has centered on human learning and memory. He's not only published hundreds of papers, dozens of textbook chapters, and mentored over 30 students for their MA and or PhD, but he also received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Society of Experimental Psychology and Cognitive Science in 2016, and in 2017, he was elected to the National Academy of Sciences. It's such a tremendous honor for me to speak today with Roddy Rodiger about his book, Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Dr. Burleson here. You've heard that real estate should be a part of every investor's portfolio, but maybe you're unsure where to start. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Phelps, leads an investor community that has ditched the traditional Wall Street model for the stability of real estate assets. They are called Freedom Founders, and they do real estate really, really well. David's Freedom Blueprint reveals exactly how much you need to retire. Some of my top clients have done the program. They speak highly of David and his Freedom Blueprint. With the certainty of their passive real estate investments, Freedom Founders members are free to spend more time with family or even leave the practice altogether. David has put together some special resources for my listeners. To access, just text Dustin to 972-203-6960 or go to freedomfounders.com forward slash Burleson. Roddy, I'm so excited to talk to you and I love your book uh, for everyone who's uh, joining us on the podcast or via email link. Um, the book is Make It Stick uh, and it's just such an honor to have you here. Thanks for being here. Glad to be here. I discovered your work. We spoke a little bit before we started the recording at uh, Tufts University had a, a teaching course on how to become better teachers. I'm a part-time instructor at the dental school and I was embarrassed that I had not uh, heard of your research before then, but you are quite distinguished in your field and uh, it's such an honor to be here. Can you tell the listeners maybe a little bit who might not be familiar with your work a little bit about your background and, and your research lab? Sure. Uh, I uh, am a cognitive psychologist and I've been studying learning and memory um, in laboratory settings mostly my whole life and about mm, the year 2000 or so, nearly 25 years ago, I took a turn to go in a more applied direction from the work I've been doing and said, if we know so much about learning and memory, uh, maybe we should apply it to education. Uh, and I was able, luckily, to get uh, two big grants to do that, uh, one from the James S. McDonald Foundation here in St. Louis, uh, another one from the Institute for Education Science in Washington, and so uh, those helped a whole lot. And so for the next 15, 20 years, uh, I did research on learning and memory and make it stick, came out of that work. Yeah. And I was doing with uh, Mark McDaniel, my colleague here, who's a co-author of the book. Uh, and then uh, the first author is Peter Brown, who's a professional writer. Yeah, it's fantastic. Thanks for it. I love books that take 
a body of knowledge, a career's worth and distill it for, you know, the general public for us to, to, to consume and learn the lessons. It's been great. I love that the book dispels some myths about learning. I think a lot, unfortunately, that I was taught in, in, in uh, early, early years and maybe even dental school. Uh, I'd love to talk about some of those. One of them I jotted down was um, the myth that if we can make learning easier and faster, the learning will be better. Another is that we can commonly uh, just think that we can expose ourselves to something enough times and it'll stick. But um, your research dispels a lot of that. Why, why is it important for students and lifelong learners to really understand who's right about how learning works? Well, I think it's critical. I mean, I, I wish um, the kind of information that's in our book were taught and I had a learning course in the fifth grade or fourth grade. Uh, it even works in elementary school children. It's been shown, not by me, uh, but by others. Um, so I think it's critically important. And what we're often taught, what I was taught too, is if you simply read something repeatedly, that's a good way to learn it. Uh, and, you know, it, it's not... You know, it, the first time you read something, obviously you have to understand it, you have to read it and comprehend it, but um, simply letting, what's important is what you, your mind, your brain does with the information, not so much how many times you look at it. If you do really good things with it one time when you read it, uh, you can prevent yourself from having to reread it over and over again. So uh, it's really what your brain does with it and helps to store it and then helps to put it in a form where it can be retrieved later. Uh, that's a critical step. So uh, the idea that somehow if learning is easy, it's good. Well, some things are easy if we're very interested in them. You know, if a kid's interested in, say, baseball, well, baseball facts are easy to learn. Algebra facts, not so much. Uh, but for something you're not interested in, it's difficult. I mean, we all know, I'm sure going through dental school at points was very difficult. Uh, so was graduate school in psychology and certainly undergraduate school, certain courses, um, especially if you're not, if they're not your natural, uh, something you're naturally interested in. Um, so uh, the book has all kinds of strategies for doing that. But um, simply repeating things over and over, which is sometimes advised and is often done in sports, uh, is not a very good way. I mean, you have to do, say, in sports, you have to do that a little bit um, to just get the hang of it. Uh, and the same thing when learning to read. You simply have to read I mean, different passages over and over. So simple practice is good in certain situations. But once you've got the basic hang of it, you need to do some more complicated things. Uh, so say in learning skills, for example, uh, one thing people don't realize that they need to do is to mix it up. That when you play, in a, say, a baseball game, when, when you have batting practice in a game, even in the major leagues, uh, they say, okay, I'm going to throw you 10 fastballs, now 10 curveballs, now 10 change-ups. Well, that never happens in a game. The pitcher doesn't tell you, okay, here comes the change up. Uh, the whole idea is you have to be able to recognize that as it comes off the pitcher's fingertips and arm movements. So you need to learn to discriminate among different skills. Um, and if you, yeah, learn, when you first learn to hit, yeah, you need to have that kind of repetitive practice a little bit. 
But then once you're really getting skilled, you need to really mix it up. You don't, if you're a tennis player, you don't hit 15 forehands and 15 backhands. You need to, you know, the old saying is uh, play like you practice and you'll practice like you, no, other way around, <laughs> practice uh, like you play and you'll play like you practice. So make it uh, what in the jargon of psychology we call transfer appropriate processing. Whatever your task is, uh, eventually that you want to succeed at, practice like that as much as you can. A great, so, great piece of advice. And yeah, there's the the strategies in the book are great. And you share really cool stories from airline pilots to neurosurgeons. And I think that's maybe one example of variety. Yeah. Uh, pilots don't just practice simple takeoff and landings. They they prepare in simulators and then in the real yeah. world for for catastrophic things. And I'm glad they do as a passenger yeah. in the back of their airplanes. Um, can we talk about, I think there's been a lot of this in the news recently. And I'm curious your thoughts on standardized testing and that people saying like, we just got to do away with it. And uh, you actually share a quote in the book from Einstein about creativity being more important than knowledge and students okay. latch onto that and say, well, I just want to be creative. Uh, but I don't think you want your pilot or your surgeon to always be create creative in what right. they're doing. Can we talk about that, that balance? You know, there's a real dichotomy there between creativity and, and, and doing the hard work of knowledge. Yes. Um, I think it's a false dichotomy in the sense that you're not going to be creative in a field unless you have a huge knowledge base about it. If I, if, if none of us are going to be, uh, you know, Einstein's quotes, fine and all that. But if he hadn't had a tremendous knowledge of physics, he wouldn't have been able to step further. I mean, it's the standing on the shoulders of giants idea. If there hadn't been a Newton, there wouldn't have been an Einstein, those kinds of things. Uh, to be able to break the rules, you have to understand what the rules are, or what the laws are. So uh, I, I see it that uh, you have to have a strong knowledge base before you can be created. So the idea of, I mean, yeah, it's fine to have young children do coloring outside the lines, but they really are going to have to learn you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic, as they say, uh, and many other subjects in order to really make a contribution to knowledge. You don't become a creative coder in some programming language with never having steep yourself in that programming language. So it just doesn't happen. There's no creativity without a knowledge base. That's a great, uh, great point. I just, I really appreciated that because I feel, I feel like it's easy to, I think in the news, it's easy to publish articles that are sensational. And clearly if, you read things like, oh, they're going to do away standardized testing. I, I mean, that gets me to click, uh, you know, because that's something that we're very passionate about with our kids trying to get them into college and get them prepared yeah. for, you know, a, a future life where I think testing is um, is important. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, yeah, I think standardized testing has gotten a bad rap that uh, it's amazing uh, how accurate it is. I mean, the problem with using it in as a selection criterion is um does it really say I, I uh, teach at a very selective school, Washington University in St. Louis. And um, so maybe I, I, we don't require scores anymore. They're optional. And a lot of schools are going to that. And I don't know. I feel like scores are useful information. People say, well, they're biased. They're discriminated against uh, people without the advantages. Uh, and that's probably true, but everything we use, letters of reference, 
uh, enrichment activities well. Um, put kids work in the summers, which kids can go off and do exciting things uh, and help the poor or uh, whatever they do. Uh, so um, I, I think they're really useful information. I, I'm sorry to say it's going away from them. The problem is selecting if if somebody gets a, say, the, the SAT test runs from 200 to 800. If somebody gets a 750 and somebody else gets a 700, uh, or even a 650, there's really no difference. I mean, they can both succeed in college. And so using it as a selection of upper reaches, um, I, I don't think it's particularly useful. But if you're a Harvard, I mean, they've even talked about doing this. I don't think they ever will. But <clears throat> having some kind of screen, have a, you know, sort applicants and the people who you think could profit by Harvard, who couldn't probably half the people who apply could get, you know, and then pick them by lottery. Yeah. Uh, so uh, they won't do that, I don't think, but um, because they really think they can pick this person over that person. And uh, they pick on all kinds of criteria. I mean, when uh, my children uh, uh, were doing their college tours, <clears throat> I remember at Stanford, um, the uh, director uh, who were giving the talk said, look, Next year, the, the tuba player in our band graduated. Next year, we're going to find the smartest tuba player we can find and admit them to Stanford. And so uh, they use all these criteria uh, uh, besides SATs, grades, everything else. They have other needs. So, um, But I think standardized test scores are useful. They really tell you, I mean, like... Uh, if we didn't get standardized tests, we wouldn't know that during COVID, students really took a hit. Yep. Uh, uh, that staying home for two years um, uh, hurt them. They really got held back. And now everybody's trying to figure out how to make up for it. And was it a mistake to keep them back and so forth? Uh, that's a hard question, but we wouldn't even know there was a problem if we didn't have standards. That's, that's a great point. I never thought about that. That's really, really insightful. Um, I want to talk about something we're working with with our residents, and that's on uh, the learning that comes from reflection on personal experience. And I'm curious what the research shows in that area and how listeners could apply it in their lives and in their work. Well, uh, I'm not sure what you tell me what you mean by personal experience there. Or the the reflect the reflection on it. So instead of simply presenting a bunch of facts and data on how to treat uh -huh. a particular case or a case report, following up that next week and and asking them to reflect on and maybe something they tried in the clinic or something they learned. So the um, re the, the reflection yeah. aspect. What what's the research say about that? Because that was really fascinating to me in the book. Yeah. No. Um, that uh, the research base isn't strong on that, uh, but the uh, best advice is that that the thought is it's very hard to study exactly because how do you get people, how do you know they're reflecting? But um, the thought is that what really is important is asking yourself, I mean, in a way, uh, one of the things we advocate in the book that we haven't talked about yet is uh, testing for learning. So let me detour for this and then come back to your question. So uh, every time we test ourselves or we take a test, it doesn't just measure what we're learning, it changes it. And usually it improves it. So uh, when I'm memorizing the names of the students in my class, I go through 
Sometimes I make flashcards with a picture on face on one side and name on the other and just do them so I can get them all and call their names that if I bump into them on campus. Um, so, um, and I just keep doing that all during the semester. So I, I know their names. I forget them probably by the end of the next semester or at least some of them. Uh, but I have them at least for a while I need them. And so, and I reflect on what do I know about this kid? You know, that's the kind of thing where I don't just recall the name, I recall where they're from and try to enrich my thoughts. So the idea is, I would think in dentistry, like being a doctor, in some sense, every patient you get is a test. Here's this person, they have this problem. Uh, what's the nature of the problem? What do I do about it? And at least in a lot of medicine, some things are ambiguous uh, and you have to figure it out. And then I think, especially in those cases where it's not straightforward, somebody comes in with a broken leg, okay, that's easy enough to diagnose and you know how to fix it. But uh, for the things, especially where it was unclear, reflecting on the case, what did I learn from it? Uh, did I do things right? Did I do things wrong? What can I do better next time with this kind of case? I think those things are critically important. And we have good examples of that in the book. Uh, say the neurosurgeon in one of the early chapters that you mentioned, uh, where he had reflected on a new way to tie off knots to stop bleeding in the brain. And then a patient came in with a gunshot wound and um, he was able to uh, save the patient's life because he had developed this technique all on his own from reflecting on his prior experience. So I think reflection can be critical, but the evidence is mostly this kind of anecdotal evidence. But I think it's really important. Um, you know, when you teach your course, at the end of the course, what did I do wrong? What did I get wrong? What should I change next time? I think every teacher does that almost automatically. I mean, I've changed even courses I teach for years. I've changed it every semester, uh, always trying to improve it, and dropping topics that didn't work and adding ones that did. Are there tips you have to help part-time professors like me encourage students and residents to reflect more? Do you nudge uh, them to, or do you give quiz questions more often or what the, I personally also love flashcards that work that got me through dental boards. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. Uh, flashcards are great. I think uh, as a way to learn certain types of information. If you're a philosophy major, flashcards aren't going to help. Uh, <laughs> what I do in my courses is um, some, if it's a really big course, I have to quiz. Um, I teach, uh, given my age, and uh, um, I teach small seminars. I teach a freshman seminar every year uh, on memory with a, a friend of mine. Uh, and we have we assign readings, and then we ask probe questions. And students for every class meeting write a 500-word essay, roughly 500 words, uh, uh, I tell them we'll read as much as they write. but um, And then we read those before class and we orient the class discussion around questions and thoughts they've had and we get them to defend what they thought. So that gets them to read. We require attendance so they show up in class, uh, not a given in college. <laughs> uh, and then we uh, uh, get them to discuss their ideas. And it works really well. Then we lecture some. Uh, after after all that, 
but um, but it's, but it puts the onus on them, and they really have to do the reading and reflect hard on it and write something more or less coherent for 500 words. And their writing gets much better during the course of the semester that uh, we challenge them every class. So they're reflecting every class. Uh, and we tell them, this is why we're doing this. That, and, you know, it's very unusual for a college class to require an essay for every class. But they get the hang of it. And usually by the end, most of them say, boy, I learned a lot from doing that. Uh I really like that. I really, really like that because I, I don't feel like I had enough of that. There were a few departments who did more oral exams, and so there was more reflection, and I was always yeah. more prepared for those than the the midterm and then the final that were multiple yeah. choice. You just kind of crammed and you know did your best. Uh, I really, really like that. I I love the part of the book we talk about um, an aversion to failure, and that sometimes mm-hmm. we reinforce that as instructors. Um, and that sometimes we think if we let students fail, they're going to learn those failures. Um, can you talk about why you think that's misguided? Well, uh, the evidence shows it's misguided. I believe that for a long time. There's a, a tradition in psychology that, psychology that came out of uh, behaviorism from B.F. Skinner, who had uh, instructional programs in the 1950s and 1960s, which I uh, partook in as an undergraduate. And the idea was um, you read something, that was kind of a good idea. Then you'd take a little test right afterwards. Uh, There'd be a sentence and you'd have to fill in a missing word or two. Uh, And so it was kind of a quiz, and so that's helpful. But the problem was you had the information in short-term memory, and he didn't want you to fail because he believed uh, errors will be stamped in. Uh, If you write down something that's wrong, that's what you'll remember. Uh, And it sounded reasonable to me. But the, the quiz is just too soon. You don't get much benefit if something happens immediately afterwards and you don't have to, you need some effort at retrieval to make that learning stick. Uh, and so um, the research showed that uh, even when you make errors, as long as they're corrected pretty soon afterwards, you don't have a problem. You remember the correct answer, not the wrong answer. So they never tested that assumption early on. But now it's been tested a number of times because people found it very counterintuitive that errors wouldn't be remembered. Uh, But they're not uh, very much. As long as you get the correct answer after the test or uh, either immediately, you know, if you're doing a program type thing, it can pop up immediately on your computer. But even if you just do it in the classroom and you get the answer right afterwards, it's been shown that the correct answer is stick and the wrong answer just goes by the boards. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Are you trying to increase your treatment plan close rates while also increasing revenue? How can you do both for your dental practice without burning out an already burdened staff? The answer, remote dental monitoring. You need a trusted HIPAA-compliant app that helps you and your staff work smarter, not harder. This needs to be an easy-to-use, easy-onboard app that your patients will find fun to use and will increase their engagement and success with aligners. You need the InHand Dental app. The InHand Dental app allows you to engage with your patients in real time, send individual and batched messages, and solve problems to increase compliance without using up chair time. The result? Happy patients, happy staff, and happy practices. With more revenue and the ability to do more starts. 
With prices starting as low as $149 a month, it's perfect for a growing aligner business. Check us out and learn more at InHandDental.com. Plus, mention Burleson for a 20% off discount on your subscription when you contact us. That's InHandDental.com. And now, back to the program. Can we talk more about effort and retrieval? I thought that was a fascinating uh, part of the book. Sure. Um, So quizzing is good. Uh, Testing yourself is good. But uh, it needs to be a little time between learning and testing. Not too much, but it can't be just out of short-term memory. So um, what I've often advised students, say I used to teach introductory psychology for 25 years, and that was a big course, so um, couldn't do the quizzes type thing. But um, but students would come in if they had a bad grade, and I would ask them how they studied. And I'd say, well, I read the book, I underlined, highlighted, uh, went back and reread what I underlined and highlighted. And I would say, well, look, look in the back of each chapter, there are all these key terms. Did you look at each key term and say, can I use that in a sentence? Did you try to write out a paragraph about uh, unconditioned stimulus or whatever the term was? Uh, nope. Uh, you know, I didn't didn't test themselves. They, the, so the illusion of learning that we talk about in the book is if I read something over and over, it seems so familiar, I really know it. But until you can answer questions about something, that tests whether you thought deeply about it, whether it's stuck. And answering questions about it uh, at the end of the chapter, if they're test questions or just key terms, uh, turn those key terms into a question. What is unconditioned stimulus or whatever the term is? Uh, then you uh, test yourself. If you don't have a clue, you go back and look at that part of the chapter. You obviously, even though you read it three times, you didn't really learn that information. Yeah, that would be one of those illusions of knowing, I think, that we yes. mentioned in the book. Yeah, yeah. yeah really, I really found that fascinating. I, I think there are um, so many ways we get tripped up by that, where we think we know it, and then we experience mm-hmm. it in the real world, or uh, something unexpected comes up, and we've yeah. never really accurately tested ourselves. It's a, a neat, neat concept for me, I think, um, something we're, we're going to work with the residents on, for sure, in, in orthodontics. Um on page 109, you say something really interesting. You say, quote, our understanding of the world is shaped by a hunger for narrative that rises out of our discomfort with ambiguity and arbitrary events, end quote. Uh, I highlighted that and underlined it. Uh, why is our urge to resolve ambiguity, do you think, so powerful? And how could we be more accurate about the judgments we make and the actions we take when something unexpected or surprising shows up? Yes, Um yeah, I like that quote too, um, even though I didn't write it. <laughs> uh, but um, the talk a little bit about narrative first. That basically, uh, human beings are natural storytellers. I mean, we like to tell stories to each other. And when you describe a case history of a patient, well, that's a story. Here's the problem. Here was the solution we tried. Here's what worked. Here's what didn't. I'm making this up because. I don't know that much about dentistry except being a patient. Um, and so um, we like to, things are very memorable if you can put them in stories. If That's one problem with something like calculus. It's very hard to put into a story. The best teachers can do it. Yeah. Uh, but um, 
And so if you're teaching something that lends itself to narrative, you're much better off. Uh, and if you can put things that way, uh, we have a natural tendency to remember stories. Um, Lily Tomlin said the reason we have speech is because we were born to gossip. <laughs> but I don't think but that's an example of narrative where they stick. Uh, but uh, the... Um, but I think if you can teach like that so you have a narrative, you're much better off. And if you can convert what you want to say into some kind of narrative, and if you can also use concrete figures of speech that abstractions are very hard to learn, it's much easier to learn if you can make things concrete. Um, big uh, big literature in my field on, on that. So... Uh, let's see. Now, let me come back to the other part of your question uh, or observation. Remind me. Yeah, just how we can be more accurate about the judgments we make, oh, and, and when, yeah. when something surprising happens, you know, how can we be more accurate and not rely yeah. back on that false sense of knowing? Yeah, um, it's very hard. I mean, it's just trial and error at that point. You need to experience this. If you have, you know, a patient who comes in. And you say, I can't categorize this problem. There's pain, but it doesn't seem to be this, doesn't seem to be that. What is it? Uh, and uh, doctors often fall back on, oh, it's functional, meaning it's in their head or something. <laughs> and it's never very satisfying to the patient. Uh, no, it's not in my head, it's in my gum. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, the, um, so it's just... You know, there is no magic bullet there. You have to be, uh, the, the problem is overconfident. You can be sure you know what it is and then be wrong. Uh, I think being having a humility so that you say, I need to try out several things here. I can't just pick the first thing that I think it is and assume I'm right, especially if it doesn't seem to be helping. So you just have to be guided by the experience as it's ongoing and Try not just to stick with your first hypothesis if it doesn't seem to be working. Um, that's one big problem that people in medicine tell me that sometimes happens, that they'll stick to a diagnosis even though the patient's not getting better with the standard treatment. It's very true. And I think uh, it's we become professional students and we become very uh, fearful of failure. We always have always want to have the right answer. And um, uh, so that experience thing is just, you have to, I feel like, take time and, um, and yes, really, sir. yeah. Um, I, I loved, I, I just, I scribbled notes in the mart. I hope it's, I always feel bad. A friend of mine is a book publisher. He's like, don't write in your cloth bound books, but I always, <laughs> there's tons of notes in the yeah. margins. And <laughs> so I apologize, but I wrote all over it. No, there's, there's a, yeah. There's a great, great quote on page 159 where you say quote mastery, especially of complex ideas, skills, and processes is a quest. It's not a grade on a test, uh, something bestowed by a coach or a quality that simply seeps into your being with old age and gray hair, end quote. I really like that um, because it shows how we need to be mindful of how mastery really works. And I know there's a lot of popular concepts on it. It takes 10,000 hours or it takes all that, you know, like maybe if you're, if you're Picasso, it probably takes a lot, a lot fewer than 10,000 hours. But, um, you know, I guess the question, if there is one, is how could we be more mindful of that? The difference between mastery and simply getting good grades on a test or how could we encourage ourselves as lifelong, lear lifelong learners or our employees or our coworkers or our students uh, to embrace that and see that? 
Yeah. Um, I think it takes a lifetime experience to really gain mastery um, in, in certain things. I mean, the 10,000 hours came out of work by Andres Erickson, and, um, and, and it's true for certain skills, no doubt. That, and that's Malcolm Gladwell made that popular. Uh, and uh, Erickson claimed Gladwell misquoted him there. But anyway, I don't know the truth of the matter. The um, I think you, you don't gain, you know, when you, like when I became, when I got my PhD, okay, you think, well, you've mastered psychology. No, you've barely scratched the surface. <laughs> it's not until you start teaching that you really learn things much better. And, that, you know, you just keep, if you're a lifelong learner, you just keep learning more and more. Uh, and then from that, all that learning, you hope comes wisdom. You, you have all these experiences. I have all these experiences with different kinds of students, with different kinds of courses, and you just think, uh, you hope you get better. Uh, you probably reach some asymptote at some point, but um, you, you just hope you keep getting better, and you have to keep reflecting on your experience, always asking yourself, what could I have done differently? What could I do better? How could I have done this better? Um, you know, advising graduate students, uh, teaching residents, whatever the, the task is, just always reflecting on it, dealing with patients too. Uh, I know uh, uh, my daughter is a doctor, and she said going through medical school that some students would have these great grades uh, just rise to the top of the class, but she says I wouldn't trust them to be my doctor in a million years. They didn't have that uh, quality, uh, that she thought you would want a doctor of empathy and being able to take the patient's perspective and so forth. Uh, that uh, they did did great in Claire's classes, but it's not a totally independent kind of knowledge. Obviously, you have to gain, you know, it's kind of like creativity. You have to gain this background of knowledge, but then it takes more than that to be a good dentist. It takes other kinds of people skills too. Yeah, what advice would you have for a, a new professor or a, a, a practice owner who has an employee or maybe they're looking at working with another doctor who might be lacking some of those empathy skills? Any any advice on uh, how to identify that and maybe help coach anyone along? I don't know how you do that except trying to get people to put themselves in the patient's place. I mean, often doctors write these articles about when they became a patient. Uh, oh, my God, I didn't realize how bad the hospital was. They're waking you up all night. And I'm thinking, yeah, <laughs> everybody's been in the hospital loves that, except the doctors. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so uh, so trying to have that experience. And as a dentist, I'm sure you go see other dentists for your own teeth. So you do have that experience routinely. Um, and uh, so I think that helps. Uh and doctors, um, surprise sometimes they don't go see other doctors that much. And it's like, just like a lawyer uh, is their own worst client. They're their own client. Same thing with doctors, I'm sure. Yes. You need to go get the outside perspective from somebody else. Uh, and so same thing with teaching. And it's harder because you're, uh, there's what's called the curse of knowledge, um, uh, the number of studies. Once you have knowledge, uh, you can't remember what it was like to be a brand new learner where you didn't have it. And so I think in math, that's a huge problem that 
I've talked to people who teach calculus who just can't believe students come in where they really are, because I was that student. I uh, did fine in calculus, but boy, it was hard work for my part. Um, and whereas some people seem to have a natural ability in it, but most people don't. And so uh, having a, a math professor who can empathize with the students, who can remember what it was like. And it's very hard. Once you have the knowledge, it's very hard to put yourself back into the state of uh, abysmal ignorance that you were when you came in as a student. So that's true of all of us. I mean, I try when I teach not to use big words, not to use jargon, or if I do use, have to use jargon to explain what it means in common terms if I can, just never use a big word or a small word will do uh, kind of philosophy. Whereas a lot of uh, professors like to show off their vocabulary and their erudition and give a lecture that's all been incomprehensible. I mean, I've heard psychology colloquially that I should have understood that I wouldn't have a clue what was going on because the person was not in my field and was so far down some path that using all kinds of words I didn't know, even though I'm a psychologist. So it can happen to any of us. Yeah, I see that with not just new dental students and residents, but with patients as well, where we kind of speak at this level and we don't realize that we need to bridge that gap between where our knowledge is and and theirs. There's lies. Um, that's great, great advice. Any advice for any parents listening on um, helping your daughter get into medical school or become a doctor? Was that did she always want to be a doctor? I'm just curious what what that uh, was like. It the, was, um, yeah, yeah. Medical school is hard. There's no doubt about it. And the whole process is just, oof. Uh, I mean, I didn't have any desire to be a doctor. She, uh, her senior year in high school, at the very end, the last month. Uh, when the seniors had senioritis at this particular high school in town, they had students do some special project, shadow. So she shadowed the doctor. One of her friends was a uh, father, was a cardiologist. So she shadowed him for a month. And he was very kind to her. He let her do, go see all kinds of stuff uh, and be with him and explain to her what was going on. And she, that's where she tells me she got the fascination with it. Um, so uh, it set her on a hard road. <laughs> and she, uh, but now she's doing just great. She's in New York at Mount Sinai Hospital. Uh, so uh, she's a, a gastroenterologist in general and then a liver specialist. So, um, but she told, kept me informed the whole way. <laughs> I think that's awesome. Um, I'm just always fascinated of uh, the children of, you know, esteemed and and just highly successful parents kind of how they you know how they navigate their own path and um you know she did medicine instead of psychology and i'm just curious how that how that was um as a parent seeing that you know all that hard work blossom into a great great result yeah no uh it was gratifying uh he complained a lot along the way, so I got to hear that part of it too. 
Well, on behalf of me and all future patients, we're glad uh, glad she put in the hard work because it's um, it's literally life and death. So we're uh, we're we're grateful for all of our physicians and and all the healthcare providers. So uh, I always get to joke and say it's just just teeth, right? So I work at Children's Mercy Hospital. They um, have a cleft lip and palate team where we get to help out, but the rest of the time it's like it's just a tooth. We're gonna we're gonna be just fine. So um, I've really loved the chance to get to talk to you. We're gonna make sure everyone has a link to the book. I want to make sure we get any final thoughts uh from you on the program maybe where listeners can find more about your lab or what you're what you're up to and researching uh, yeah if you just google my name you get to my website and all my publications are on my website and some are probably baffling but others are are pretty general so that would be a place to start yep. and there are a number of other good books about learning and memory dan willingham is a good person to read uh He's more on K to twelve education, uh, but uh, and he writes a column for the Wall Street Journal, so he he would be a good another good person for you to look at. Excellent. Yeah, we'll post a link to his work uh, in the show notes. And then I can't leave without saying that the book is so well referenced and researched with more reading recommendations. And the last chapter Uh, is worth its weight in gold because it's a summary of all of the. strategies that we can use in our own lives to be lifelong learners and i do believe all this should be taught in fourth or fifth grade and clearly it's helping me be uh, at least a somewhat better uh, adjunct professor at the dental school so thank you roddy it's just been a tremendous yeah. honor well, it's great to talk to you Justin. thank you take care Thanks for listening to another episode of The Burleson Box. And a special thank you to Roddy Rodiger for coming on the program. If you like what you heard, please share us with a friend or colleague. Subscribe on whatever app you use to download podcasts. And we'll see you again next time right here inside another episode of The Burleson Box. When's the last time you evaluated your credit card processing statement? Our partners at Stacks are offering a free savings analysis for our listeners, where they will actually take your merchant statement with your current processor and show you where you're overpaying. Stacks has saved orthodontics practices over 40% per month on payment processing costs. So don't wait. Get your free savings analysis today and see how much you're overpaying for your credit card processing. Go to StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars to schedule your savings analysis today. Plus, as a special offer for our podcast listeners, if you sign up today, you can get your first two months of payments processing costs waived from Stacks. Once again, that's StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars. Stop overpaying. Start saving.